0: It was a grim cartoon that was in Puck Magazine, September 1884, and I'm looking at it as I talk to you. It showed on one side a statuesque Washington, one hand in his vest pocket, the other by his side, looking down. On the other side, a Lincoln, also looking down. And both are looking at the middle of the picture, where there is an empty chair that has eagles carved into the armrest. So it's obviously a chair of significance. It is the presidential chair. And the title reads, This coming term will end the first hundred years of the American presidency. Shall the century begin with Washington at the head of our government and end in disgrace? The pages of this magazine called one candidate for the 1884 election the living rebuke of the civil service system. Another newspaper would call on the other candidate in the race to step down because his disgrace was so intense. While both candidates in this year secured their party's nomination, neither one was beloved by voters generally or by their own partisans. In both cases, there were significant groups of Democrats and Republicans that found themselves bolting. And in this opportunity, muckraking reporters, paid stooges, lawyers, detectives, members of the clergy would all enter the campaign at different points. And so the campaign continues in the fall with two flawed top tickets, Grover Cleveland and James G. Blaine. And what do you do? Well, if you're a Cleveland supporter in New York, you get out. You don your boots, you don your hat and your thick shirt. This is October in New York. And a sash that says Cleveland. And your lamp with a handle in one hand, and a poster, or really a kind of four-sided lampshade-type thing that says, Reform on all four sides. And you get out, and you march in a torchlight parade with your fellow mugwumps and Democrats. And you'll cheer shoulder to shoulder as the long parade goes by. Before we're three weeks older, corruption is doomed to die. The torches flicker and gleam. On the autumn, they breeze and stream. And over the thundering cheer, a song reads sturdy and clear. A victory to be won. We'll bring you over to Grover, to Grover, before the campaign is done. I don't really know if that's the melody. I couldn't quite find it, but those are the words that you would be Shouting as you're moving through the streets of contested New York State, we'll bring you over to Grover to Grover, advocating your candidate. As a side note, we really got to bring torchlight parades back. And I'm sure, just like if you post something on Twitter and you see all kinds of pushback underneath, I'm sure as they walk through the streets, there might be other people like, down with Cleveland. Grover is not so good or something like that, you know. Now, the interesting thing is that 1884 should not have been a close election at all. Republicans had won five straight presidential elections in a row, and then as in now, it's awfully hard to continue a record like that. They'd won the White House every time since 1860. A couple of them were close, and they didn't always win the elections for Senate and Congress during that time. But the presidency had been theirs. They were due for a row. They had just gotten beaten badly in the 1882 midterms. Democrats coming into office were hungry for civil service reform. Maybe not because they were great reformers, but because they had been out of power so long that they were tired of the other side having all the benefits. And so they worked with the incumbent GOP president, Chester Arthur, to pass civil service reform. It was limited at first. It would be expanded over time. Then the party nominates, not their incumbent president, Chet Arthur, who wants to run but is seen as someone who can't win, but James G. Blaine, the former Speaker of the House. He was an aspirant for the presidency in 1876. It was known, however, widely known, that he had done favors for railroad magnates, other big business people, for cash or company shares in return. Usually, this was land grants, and during this time, it's revealed in journalism that that the railroads are given significant portions of western land by Congress in exchange for land grants. There's a huge congressional investigation, and Blaine is called up. He once was the Speaker of the House, now no longer Speaker. He's called before Congress and grilled. And what's discovered is that he had had conversations with a railroad magnate in Maine, and had constantly written a series of letters asking for favors, asking perhaps for cash, but the letters were always um, on the back of the letters that James Blaine wrote. He would write, burn this letter. There's an employee of this man named Mulligan who has copies of the letters and testifies before Congress that he does. Blaine reads some of the letters himself. And by doing so, he gets out of prosecution from the Congressional Committee, staves the scandal off a bit, but in the public mind, James G. Blaine and corruption are one and the same. Now it's not even 10 years later, and the Republicans are nominating this guy for the presidency. Well, some Republican opponents find Mulligan again, and they find that he still has a few letters. And these letters are published, and some of them are are quite damning. Again, on the back of them, James Blaine has written in his hand, Burn this letter. One of them gives the recipient an entire letter to write in his own hand that it would exonerate James G. Blaine, the text of which James G. Blaine writes for him completely on the back of it. It says, Burn this letter. Burn this letter becomes a cry at Democratic rallies. Because of this, a lot of Republicans are what you might call never blainers, or mugwumps. An Algonquin word for it means kind of high warrior, but it's appropriated to mean holier than thou, aloof types in politics by their enemies. But the mugwumps take it kind of a take the name as a badge of honor. They were GOPers who had been against Democrats. But now are going to work against Blaine. As Puck magazine, one of the Mugwump publications, says in its pages, "The case of honesty is greater than that of any party, as once did the institution of slavery." The corruption of politics is sapping the moral sense of the people. If Mr. Blaine is made president, honesty has lost the battle, and the Mugwumps make it clear in letters, in newspapers, even in cartoons, that if a decent Democrat is nominated. If the party can get it together and just nominate someone who's not corrupt like Blaine, they're going to get a lot of GOP support, particularly in New York and surrounding states. Now some politics. The GOP, post-Civil War, has a strong organization in the North. It's not possible that the Democrats are going to win in Massachusetts. New England, most of it is solid GOP. So is Minnesota, Wisconsin. Pennsylvania would vote Republican throughout the 19th century and and a lot of the early 20th. Solid Republican state. Not going to get it. The Democrats, on the other hand, are a lock in the South. And they have a really good shot at Indiana, Delaware, all the border states, New Jersey. Really, though, the big swing state in 1884 between Democrats and Republicans is New York. Back then, it has 10% of the electoral votes of the entire nation. It's the center of American population. It's growing. So, This prize is a big deal. It literally will turn the election. Democrats can compete in New York, but in order to do so, they compete because they've got Tammany Hall and its Irish Catholic immigrant vote that it can turn out in elections for the political machine there. Now, Boss Tweed is long out of Tammany Hall. He's died by the time you get to 1884, but the organization is still there. You can accept the. Support of Tammany Hall as a Democrat, but it's going to come with national shame in the in the press and shame in the New York press as well. Democrats got the answer. Grover Cleveland is the new governor of New York. He is not connected to Tammany Hall in fact, he's from Buffalo, New York, not New York City doesn't know anything to Tammany in fact, has bucked them several times and bucked the political machine in Buffalo as well. He has a reputation for his honesty. In their nominating convention in Chicago, they put Grover Cleveland on the top of the ticket and the former governor of Indiana, Thomas Hendricks, on the bottom of the ticket. This is a good combination for the two important swing states in the nation. GOP mugwumps in New York who aren't supporting blame can get behind Grover. What do you do now? You're the blame campaign. Your guy is tarnished in a way that everyone knows and you've got to compete against Grover the Good here. Guy's only been governor for two years. He was mayor of Buffalo for two years before that. Then he was the sheriff of the county. Now they're running him for president. His reputation, his record is solid. What do you do? Well, you have to find a way to go up against him personally. And that's what they do. A very loyal supporter of... James Blaine. You could call him a journalist, but he's more of a propagandist. Zimro Smith takes the train to Chicago. Grover Cleveland is nominated there. The next day, Smith is on the train. And it doesn't take him long to learn that during the Chicago convention where he's nominated, Grover Cleveland has told some people that he had a woman scrape in Buffalo. The conversation with either slip to the wrong person, maybe somebody from Tammany Hall. Uh, we're thinking a former speaker, that's what most historians think, that wasn't too excited about Grover Cleveland anyway because he had bucked the hall so many times. Maybe it was a necessary kind of shakedown or vetting process. that was necessary for Cleveland to secure the nomination. Smith hears about it, and in a few days he discovers that Grover Cleveland had been making payments to a woman who presumably had his child. The story's published, and all hell breaks loose. Lawyers come to Buffalo from the Blaine camp to dig up what they can. Democrats send their own lawyers to try to defend Cleveland. Even a group of mugwumps, GOPers, are kind of in the middle here, that want to support Cleveland, Send their own lawyer to the city of Buffalo to try to figure out what happened. Cleveland tells his friends just tell the truth. He admits to the story. He says, frankly, I had this issue. The woman said that it was my child. I don't know, but I was in a law firm, and there were numerous other lawyers in that firm. Many of them were married. I was not. Relationship was consensual. Thus, I decided, Cleveland says, to take care of the payments so as to save the other law partner's trouble and also to help the woman and help the child. So he's honest, and he admits the explanation. But now you have an outcry. Now you have a story. The papers now track down this woman, Maria Halpin of Buffalo, and they ask her for her side of the story. Well, she has a very different story. Cleveland she said forced himself on me he, she, he was he was a brute and he ruined me and he threatened to ruin me further if i ever told anyone well this is enough for the republican press certainly and you have some clergy who are not supportive of cleveland the presbyterian minister of buffalo issues a statement that grover cleveland is a corrupt licentious man and there's numerous attacks from members of the clergy Republican newspapers make up additional stories that aren't even true. And since they have the one true one, they might as well just keep rolling. Charles Dana of the New York Sun says Cleveland should resign. And this is now something that's going to instill hope in the Tammany Hall People don't really like Cleveland, that maybe either Hendricks will become the nominee or Cleveland will step down and we'll get someone else. Uh, because Dana never stops saying this throughout the election, that Cleveland is probably going to resign and should resign. But Cleveland also has his own man of God, a Dr. Kinsley Twining, and he investigates the whole matter and says that after the first sinful instance, Cleveland's conduct was proper. And you have tales come out that Cleveland is presented with a pile of papers that are equally containing personal attacks on his opponent. Cleveland only asks in the presence of reporters, are all the papers here? Yes. And he takes them and throws them in the wastebasket and says, the other side can have a monopoly on dirt in this campaign. Whether this occurred or not, it's hard to tell. I mean, just as bad stories seem to come out about Blaine, there also seem to be a lot of legends about Blaine over Cleveland and how honest and good that he was, because he was different from politicians of his time. Privately, Cleveland's getting tired. He writes to a friend, oh, how often I wish I was free, and some other good friend of mine was running. There are other scandals. There's an attempt by a Democratic newspaper to make much of the fact that James Blaine actually seemed to have been married only three months before his first child was born. Now, Blaine claimed there were two ceremonies, one public and one private. So you have a Democratic press out there saying that he was only married by the shotgun muzzle. And they also attack Cleveland based on his lack of war service during the Civil War. Cleveland is one of those people in the North who didn't serve in the Union Army, though he was of age, and instead he paid for a substitute. Now, his story is that his brothers had served, and among his family, they had drawn straws, and he was the one that was to, to stay home and take care of the family while the others served. That story doesn't go too far. It's always the bloody shirt, or the, the argument about uh, the Civil War. is always one that Republicans used against Democrats at this time. It doesn't go too far because Blaine didn't serve either. He was a member of Congress during the Civil War. What's benefiting Grover Cleveland while this tremendously embarrassing story comes out is timing. This is a scandal that opponents may have brought out early, before he was nominated, probably would have blocked his nomination. And if it came out a week before the election, it would have sunk him. But it comes out in July. Very early for 19th century elections where usually were September-October affairs. And uh, he's even writing by the time he gets to September, that perhaps the scandal business is mostly over. It's not really, and in fact, this scandal kind of equals the candidates. Cartoons of Grover scandal appear, and you have the famous one. Grover Cleveland's walking down the sidewalk and is accosted by mother and child, and the child saying, Ma, ma, where's my pa? And so forceful is the scream. Ma, ma, where's my pa? Though Cleveland tries to cover his ears, his hat blows off. But this is the second story of the 1884 campaign, and this is the one that's better known. We know a little bit about Mama, where's my pa? that scandal. But it's not just about Cleveland's love child. It's also just as much about James Blaine and his obvious corruption. And this is featured in cartoons, too. And uh, one of the cartoons featured, uh, there was this circus act that existed in Barnum Bailey that was the tattooed man. And so they have James Blaine as the tattooed man, but the tattoos all over his body are of banknotes, bonds, corrupt letters. There's also cartoons that show him being wishy-washy, preaching temperance in Maine on one hand, offering Wisconsinites a giant mug of beer in the other. There's also something that's kind of similar to today. You know, Puck Magazine condemns people in the GOP who had said in the past... Yes, James Blaine has a few problems, but just vote for him because he's going to win overwhelmingly, even if he is devoid of issue or character. As the election goes on and things get tighter, you get this kind of buyer's remorse. And I told you so from mugwump GOP that are like, hey, you said this guy was going to be a snowball. It was going to be an easy election, and it's not. Notes of today and that, and you kind of hear that argument on both sides and in a lot of elections. You've got added complications in 1884 there are two third parties. You have the Greenback Party, headed by former Union General Benjamin Butler, which aims to take make uh, silver money the policy, which is something that Cleveland's against, and will likely take working-class votes from Democrats. And then you have the Prohibition Party, which is going to take pro-temperance voters, who might otherwise be GOP, from Blaine. The scandal that emerges with Cleveland actually puts mugwumps at least in a temporary quandary, and they do have meetings about it. But mostly, I think the mugwumps decide to stick with Cleveland that the cause of reform is more important than his personal battle. A Reverend Henry Ward Beecher is a leading mugwump. He defends Cleveland. Another significant uh, newspaper editor, George W. Curtis, when asked about what mugwumps should do, given two flawed candidates, passes on what he heard from a man in Chicago. We are told that Mr. Blaine has been delinquent in office, but blameless in public life. We are told that Mr. Cleveland is a model of public integrity, but culpable in his personal relations. Well, we should therefore elect Mr. Cleveland to the public office he is so well qualified to fill, and remand Mr. Blaine to the private sanction which he is admirably fitted to adorn. Kind of an 1884 statement on candidates' private lives for his public job approval. More from Puck Magazine, which really has some great stuff. It seems incredible at this stage of the campaign that there are still weak-minded, feeble-souled wretches who have not made up their minds which side to to take in the fight. We can understand the out-and-out Blaniac, the man who calls his candidate a plumed knight and a spotless hero and a brilliant statesman. There's nothing strange about that. Either he's lying or he's a fool. But the conscienceless creature who sits on the fence and waits to see who is to be the winning crowd, that he may join it, he is a marvel of contemptible weakness. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. I'm Jane Perles, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing Bureau Chief for the New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places. Somalia, We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian, Rana Mitter, joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-Off launches April 9th. So, Theodore Roosevelt, forced to make a choice. Does he become a never-blainer, one of the mugwumps, or does he stick with the party? Teddy, at this time, a 24-year-old in 1884, but yet leader of the Republicans in the New York Assembly, an important figure. His father had been a reformer, and he goes to that convention, and he's opposed to Blaine, but he's not successful. And really what Roosevelt does at this point is a little bit... Of wiggle, you know, he tells one reporter, uh, check with me a week hence. i like to see somebody try that now in the age of Twitter. Check with me a week hence. Well, he didn't tell that reporter he was going to Dakota for the summer. So he goes to Dakota for a little bit, wrestles some buffalo. After his vacation, he decides to go out and make speeches, but he wants to be clear. He's making speeches for the party and not the candidate. Now, I think that it tells you about the magnitude of this election and how much anti-Blaine Republicanism was going on there, that both Roosevelt and his friend Henry Cabot Lodge, even for this very weak support for Blaine, even going out and making speeches for the party and not the candidate, they're ridiculed in the press. You know, one leading newspaper says that Never has a career fallen so fast as with this 24-year-old Theodore Roosevelt. Of course, they're going to be horribly wrong about that. But it does show you Henry Cabot Lodge's friend loses his election in Massachusetts for even being a weak supporter of Blaine. Now, we've been beaten up on Blaine, and in history, Grover comes out looking good. And I think there's every reason to think so. I, I do think arguably there are many reasons to say Grover Cleveland was a good if forgotten president. But a word, if I might, about James G. Blaine. There's the obvious corruption, the obvious baggage that went on. It could be argued there was an awful lot of that going on in the United States Congress, but no excuse. He was a leading voice in taking on the racism of the South, new Confederates coming to Congress. That's the reason he drew the ire of Democrats. And when they took over the Congress... After the eighteen seventy four midterm elections, that's when they hauled James Blaine, the former speaker, up before the committees. I mean, he was a particular target for them because he had been leading the fight against them. Also, Blaine was a very good politician and a well liked person uh, that among people that knew him. So, a lot of times in history, you will see him, and particularly in those cartoons, as this kind of monster. But I think even some of the political opponents realized that he was kind of a very uh, quick on his feet, good speaker, and actually had a lot of political skill. I say that because uh, something that I wasn't even aware of until I was researching this particular story is that Blaine embarks on a campaign. Now, this is prior to modern campaigns, and this is prior to William Jennings Bryan. Blaine goes out and stumps, particularly in the western states, and he makes 400 speeches. But this is not 2016, and you don't have any situation where Blaine and Cleveland are in the same room glaring at each other, or, you know, uh, Blaine is telling Grover Cleveland, you know, what about Maria? And Cleveland is telling him, uh, you know, yelling at him, uh, burn this letter, Blaine, into a a microphone or something like that. (laughs) There's no such events like that. Cleveland only makes about three speeches. It's a campaign of surrogates. And you've got the third parties involved. No one quite knows what's going to go on. You've got all this GOP in New York against Blaine. Blaine isn't even particularly liked by some of the stalwarts, some of the also kind of corrupt machine bosses in New York, including Roscoe Conkling. They they ask him to to please come and support the ticket. He will not. Then Cleveland is not really well liked by the Democrats. They in, in in New York City, the Tammany Hall Democrats, the sachem does meet. They do take a vote. Yes, they're going to support the national ticket. But there's never been mild support like this for a Democrat among Tammany. What's going to happen? And so you go to October 29th. And in history, it might be the worst day that a candidate has ever had. And the newspapers are going to end up calling it Black Wednesday. Because two significant gaffes happen. Both of them have to do with something that he didn't do, but his friends do. First of all, he goes to a dinner with millionaires. Jay Gould is one of them at at the famous Delmonico's in New York City. And this turns out to be a big mistake. There's a cartoon that goes out in the New York world that shows all of these fat cats eating along with Blaine while there's a poor couple asking for money that they ignore. You know, that's what the cartoon shows. Looks terrible. That's gaff number one. Gaff number two should have been a great thing for Blaine. There's this meeting of Republican leaning clergymen, reverence in New York from all the various many churches In New York, that are going to come together and make a statement for Blaine. Well, what's the obvious thing that's also there? It's very silent, but if a bunch of reverends are making a speech for you, there's also hinted that they're against the morals of Cleveland. And it's going to hopefully whitewash some of the problems with the Mulligan letters and other corruption scandals. Well, one of the reverends who speaks, Dr. Samuel Burchard, ends up depicting Democrats as the party of rum, Romanism, and rebellion. Okay. Rum, well, that's standard 19th century GOP fodder, you know, to go after the temperance issue and that vote. Rebellion, well, Democrats did have the majority of former Confederates in their camp, and so that attack was often used. But attacking Romanism or Catholicism, that was a no-no. Not in a state with a large Catholic vote, where Tammany was barely keeping it for the Democrats at that time, where Blaine was reaching out to Irish Americans saying, hey, I'm going to go after England for all the bad things they're doing to our country and to your country. But this comment is made. The Democrats are the party of rum, Romanism, and rebellion. Now, Blaine claims that he doesn't hear the remark. It takes three days for him to to say anything about it. And during that time, Democrats have a field day. There's posters all over the city. There's, it's it's the Rum Romanism Rebellion comment is used in newspapers. They even start saying that it's not a comment that Burchard made. This is something that James Blaine said himself. I mean, you can count on unbiased reporting from the partisan press of 1884. Blaine, in a speech in New Haven, three days later, way too late, disavows the remark. Here's what he says. Kind of like looks like a modern-day Twitter apology. I differ from the party, but I have too much respect for the millions of people it represents to assail it with epitaphs of abuse. In almost every telling of the history of the 1884 election, and textbook telling of that story, and any kind of short telling of the story, the comments by Dr. Burchard the Rum, Romanism, and Rebellion is the cause of Blaine losing the election and Cleveland winning. After all, Cleveland only wins New York State, a state that he's governor of, by 1,000 votes out of 1.1 million cast and wins the election. Now, even I have written a story for the Hill newspaper recently, and thank you very much. The Hill has been uh, publishing articles of, of mine, uh, which is great. There was only space enough to lead with that outcome. It is the most likely reason for Blaine losing Cleveland winning. That comment. You know, it's definitely something that's turning that Irish Catholic vote in New York City and having eh, some reason for the Tammany Hall Democrats to get excited about Cleveland who had bucked them all these years and who they're not going to be very excited about as president. But there's also some other factors, and so we don't really know. We never know really what what cost the election. I mean, Blaine wasn't liked among Republicans in New York. Republicans had won five straight elections. The the level the issue of civil service reform had gone the Democrats' way because in Congress they had actually taken some action on it. So there were a number of reasons. In fact, there's a Song that the Democrats sing that reveals how the cause of the electoral defeat is not really known. Here it is The World said the Independents did it. The Tribune said the Stalwarts did it. The Sun said Butcher did it. Blaine said St. John, the prohibition candidate, did it. Theodore Roosevelt said it was the soft soap dinner, the dinner at Delmonico's. We say Blaine's character did it. But we don't care what did it. It's done. So it's a little chant from the Democrats. But we don't care what did it. It's done. So, I mean, you hear some of the, this 2016 election is, is definitely featuring unseemly attacks. There's surprises. The shoe drops every day, it seems. And it's a very different type of election. I would say that in 1884, for its time... Readers were reading about things, you know, direct and public attacks on the on the corruption of a one candidate and direct and public attacks on the private character of another, the cartoons that they were witnessing. It was an election that I think a lot of people wanted to be over fast, and nobody was thrilled about either candidate. Maybe not as visceral, but there was different technology at the time, and for the major Ways that information was conveyed, newspapers and cartoons. Well, I think it reached pretty low. I want to thank you for listening. The website is www.myhistorycanbeatupyourpolitics.com. Reminder about the premium podcast. I will, uh, in a few days, uh, have actually more information on 1884, some of the side story about Dr. Burchard's comments and how it occurred and how Blaine reacted and uh, some other notes about Cleveland and Blaine on the Premium Podcast in an episode coming soon. Uh, We talked about in a recent Premium Podcast episode about the first debate between Jerry Ford and Jimmy Carter and how the sound went out and how everybody reacted. So those are things available to you with the Premium Podcast. Uh, There's also repeat episodes of archived My History Can Beat Up Your Politics episodes and other things.